Welcome to Talking Late Night, where we spotlight top comedians and their late night influences. Here's your host, Max Cantor. Hey everybody, and welcome to Talking Late Night. I'm your host, Max, and I'm very excited for today's show because, one, it's in person. It's not over the phone, so I can see, I can see this guy, which is, which is good. Now, he's a stand-up. He's also a stand-up teacher. And on top of all that, you host your own podcast, Hot Breath with Joel Byers. And I just gave away your name, so now there's no point <laughs> to, to say, here he is. Uh, but welcome to the show, Joel Byers. Welcome to the show, Joel. Thanks for having me, man. I'm a fan of the podcast, so I'm honored to be on the roster. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. But I have to ask you just right off the bat, um, I can't figure out how old you are. <laughs> Because you look so young. I'm 12, yes. I'm 12. <laughs> 12 years, a tall 12. The tallest 12-year-old I've ever seen. I was I was looking at your pictures online yeah. um, and, and your uh, Twitter and on your podcast website, and I was like, how old is this man? And then you walk in, and you're like eight feet tall, so now I can't figure it out. I'm uh, 29, 29 years old. 29. Okay. I turned 30 on January 24th, 2018. Okay. How do you feel about turning 30? I'm jazzed about it, man. Yeah? Yeah, because you're 20, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you'll find getting older actually is more fun because you know more and you open to more experiences. And being 20, you just don't know anything except how to make an awesome podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. But Well, the reason why – well, a lot of people, you know, they say I'm getting older and they're like, oh, my 30s, where, you know, ah, where did my 20s go? But yeah. you don't seem that way. You seem very happy and confident headed into your 30s. So. I've been working towards this moment, yeah. Oh, like, your life? Uh, my whole life when I hit 30 <laughs> – I'm going to do all the open mics. <laughs> yeah, I'm super excited. I think that's a good part about pursuing your passion and what you love doing is your living is then you do look forward to progressing and towards the future as far as like, well, I'm here now. I can't wait to see where I am here. Mm-hmm. It's just fun. You have any special plans, like a giant birthday party that you're going to do for your 30th? Uh, I'm actually my uh, one of my best friends from high school, the best man at my wedding. Oh. Uh, he is premiering his movie out in L.A., Wow. The the weekend of January 27th, which is his birthday. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually going to go out there, and we're all going to celebrate together. What's the movie? It's a movie. It's a feature-length film he made. Uh, he's It's been just like a passion project of his. He's finally just got all the parts together, and he's editing it right now, and he set a premiere date for the 27th. That is pretty cool. Yeah, it's going to be very really exciting. Cool. Yeah. All right, well. Um, Stephen Fine, by the way. Stephen Fine. Stephen Isaac okay. Fine. Yes. Shout out to Stephen. Yes. Um, but enough about Stephen. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about you. Yeah, um, finally. So Jeez. tell me. Yeah, so, sorry, Stephen. <laughs> it's time to move on. Uh, Joel, tell me, when, when you were growing up, mm-hmm. what late night shows? influenced you and your comedy the first one that comes to mind my dad would always watch Jay Leno Jay Leno Jay Leno one the thing that stuck out with him one he would come out and always touch the audience he always engaged with the audience that way and the main thing he did were the uh, the headlines. Did you watch? Do you, you familiar with Jay Leno? Mm-mm, I'm not familiar with Jay. Oh, Leno. Oh, I love it. You said, "Oh, Jay Leno." Whoa, what? <laughs> Who? Well, the reason why I said that you are the first person to mention Jay Leno. Not wow. one other person has mentioned Jay Leno on the show. And I was just Whoa. commenting actually to a guest I had a couple weeks ago. I was like, "No one's ever said Jay Leno on this show." So you're the you're the very first one. That's interesting. So I mean, some people may have been Letterman; they were on at the same time, mm-hmm. but it was always just Leno. And I just remember his banter he would have with Kevin Eubanks. That was his uh, guitar player. Mm -hmm. And they would do this segment I loved. 
I think it may have just been called headlines where people would mail in funny newspaper headlines and like, or funny advertisements in newspapers. And they Mm -hmm. would just, it was almost like the original social media. They were like showing memes on Mm -hmm. late night and they were just, it was, it seemed like a very simple concept that was very effective and funny. So you mentioned Jay Leno and David Letterman. Because you were watching Jay Leno, did you not watch Letterman? Yeah, I didn't even – I never watched David Letterman. I never even really – I knew he existed. I never even really got his humor until I was probably older and saw like the dry and how sny his interviews could be and everything. But Mm -hmm. I never was in that realm. It was always Leno and then after Leno – Conan, of course. Mm-hmm. So I would always follow up with Conan, who was just the silly guy who you know pulled the strings on his hips and all that, and doing right. a lot of fun more skits. So I kind of learned from both of those shows. What about Leno touching the audience attracted you to him? I think it was one. It was just unique, something I'd never seen. Almost breaking that barrier. A lot of times you watch a show and you only hear the audience. You don't even see the audience unless mm-hmm. some late night shows will now incorporate sketches into the audience and have cast members or whatever people. But I think it was just something about breaking that fourth wall of like, hey, we're kind of all in this together. This is cool. And they were sitting right up on the stage, and it's just it kind of made you feel more a part of the show that the audience was more a part of the show. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not as familiar with Leno, um, mm-hmm. but I do know he was a stand-up comedian. Um, so did he incorporate a lot of like stand-up into his shows? Yeah, well, he would always open up with a monologue right. that I guess his writers would write. Mm-hmm. But he had a very specific delivery, and he'd have his hand in his pocket, and yeah, I'm Jay Leno. Yeah, <laughs> So it was always just there was a monologue and then they would do like a different segment, like a skit or whatever, and then do like their interviews. So it had that late night format, but he always opened up with a monologue and he was very he has his own style and delivery. But I've heard, you know, Jerry Seinfeld will say Jay Leno is like the funniest comic he's ever seen live, Mm -hmm. which I've never even actually seen his stand up. It's only been his late night stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what about Conan did you like? The energy, the fun, it was always fun. I've heard people on here mention the year 2000, mm-hmm. that whole segment. That's great. The one thing that stuck out to me, he would, I think he was the first show I saw use green screens where they would, they would sometimes do a sketch where it would just be somebody's mouth over like a still image and it would like just transpose the mouth like it would be like a painting talking or whatever mm-hmm. or they would do like a fake driving scene with a green screen behind it and Conan would be driving and sometimes he would just pick up the steering wheel and he would just be waving it around while they're driving just all just the silly kind of out of the box thinking that now has become the norm almost you could say mm-hmm. but that absurdity is something that I really gravitated towards which also I think was what drew me not to get away from Conan, but Craig Ferguson is another mm-hmm. one who I don't I don't know if he gets as much credit as he should for just how many barriers he broke down and just the late night format and really playing around with you know the the sidekick who he had a horse mm-hmm. was a, or a, no uh, the the, the Jeff. robot yeah, yeah Jeff, Jeff the robot would be his sidekick and they would have like a horse they would go through sometimes. Mm-hmm. He would like lean off the camera, you know, and then lean in and like right. he'd get close to the camera. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a lot of a lot of I would say new ways he took on that. The interviews before he would do an interview, he'd always rip up the cards right. and then just talk to the people. I just I I love anything that's kind of like new and 
kind of not on the norm, but mm-hmm. then becomes like a trend. Yeah, the Craig Ferguson show was wild. <sighs> it was, Unbelievable. He did dude. whatever he wanted. Yeah. And that's what made it so good. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't he wasn't fitting the mold. It wasn't same old, same old. He was doing completely new things. But I was actually going to mention, um, it's funny you mentioned it too, him tearing up the the cards before every interview mm-hmm. because what always would bother me about late night, growing up I watched late night religiously, especially uh-huh. David Letterman was mine. I saw David Letterman when I was five years old for the first time oh, and I was awesome. like, oh, this guy's cool. Like I like I like what he's doing. You saw um, the show live? No, I didn't see the show live. Oh, I saw it on TV. You saw it on TV, My yeah. parents would let me stay up and uh-huh. watch it every night. Uh-huh. So I was I was the kid at school who was like, <laughs> did you guys see what Letterman did last <laughs> night? And I was like, what? You, what? Like what, Pokemon cards? What are you <laughs> right, doing? Right, what do you, what, <laughs> Who is Letterman? Is it a mailman? I don't, even, I don't understand. That's um, good. So that that was me growing up. But I just remember Craig Ferguson would rip it, and it just blew my mind because all the other people had their cards, and mm-hmm. then if they reached a, a point, they would look down, and they would take a second, and they would look back up and keep talking. And that's what drives me nuts today about – there, there are just certain late night people out there. I mean, they all, no one's ripping up the cards. They're all using the the sheet to yep. guide the interview. But James Corden, especially, I watch his show, and he is so. It's the paper. Like mm. he, he's not. It's just not natural, and it drives me just out of my mind. And my dad's the same way. Yeah, I don't like it either. Nuts. It's yeah. not natural. Yeah, it's totally not. And I'm, I noticed you doing this, you don't have notes. When I do a podcast, I always, I'll have my notes, but I've gotten better about not referencing them mm-hmm. and just trusting my memory and just knowing that the, all the, the talking points I want to hit will weave in organically. Mm-hmm. But that's something that I was, I knew starting out, I was going to have show notes because I want to do well-researched interviews. Mm-hmm. But it's been an intentional practice to get away from that crutch and just engage and just let the conversation flow. Because that's, that's something I noticed in people doing interviews. It's just, uh, they say something and then look down and they're like, well, here's I'm supposed to be interested in next. Right, exactly. Ugh. When they, you know, they present a topic, you know, they're like, oh, I went on my African safari vacation. But because the next talking point is, oh, we have to talk about things. Thanksgiving, then it's mm-hmm. like they just completely ignore it and go with the next thing that's written down. Drives me crazy, yeah. but that's why, like you said, I don't, I don't do any notes. I, I research the, the people, the guests beforehand. Mm-hmm. I look them up, obviously, so I pronounce your name right and stuff like that. <laughs> but other than that, I just see where the conversation goes. Yeah. To, for me, it's like an improv scene. You just every next step, you don't know where it's going to go. It could be boring it could be fun who, who cares it's what it's makes true. it fun it's interesting and you have your benchmarks as far as you want to talk about late night and then maybe right. talk about their careers so you have like lily pads along the way but how you get to them right that yeah who knows mm-hmm. um so so growing up you're watching jay leno and you're watching conan mm-hmm. did you have friends that watched these things with you or were you kind of like a loner in this yeah i don't really remember talking about um I don't really remember talking about late night shows with people. Really, the only Love Line was the show we would talk about in middle school. You probably don't know what Love Line is. I have no oh idea my god! I thought you were, I so thought we were making a joke. I thought no. that was like a phrase. <laughs> this is so funny. <laughs> That's another late night. That was actually radio. So let me tell you about radio, Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. This is like the first moment in my life. I'm like, this is a generation gap. I'm talking about things that like this kid has no idea. That's awesome. But Loveline was a radio show with Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew, and they would just have callers call in and talk about their love problems or whatever. If they had I mean, it, or an emotional issue, they would just call in and pretty much just get advice from Adam Carolla and Drew 
uh, Drew Pinsky, I guess his name is. And it would come on at like 11 on maybe Sunday. So then, like a lot of my friends and I would listen to it and then talk about it at lunch the next day. This may have been seventh grade. So uh, that's the probably my first memory of like doing something late night and then talking about it at school the next day. I guess the TV shows weren't really... We, I guess we were probably just too busy playing Pogs, which you have no idea what that is nope. either. <laughs> I was going to try to challenge myself to throw out stuff you don't know. So uh, the radio, okay, I know, <laughs> I know, uh, like the thing that comes to my mind is the giant radio that the families crowd around uh-huh. and they're like, come on, it's the news at six, yeah. like, you know, let's listen to it. But like when you say radio, is it like online radio? Or? No, no, son. this was back when there was dial-up, son. There was no, you had to have a whole day to get on the internet back then. It was like a seance. But um, no, I, it was like a boom box. It was like a, a radio you plugged into the wall. And it would have an antenna that came up, and you would dial like you would have to scroll. There wasn't like a button to digitally do it. You'd have to scroll through all the channels just to find what got the right frequency. Wow. <laughs> That's just like – I'm trying to picture that. It blows my mind. Yeah, I wish there was an example of one. It's literally like – I mean the boombox could be I mean, bigger than the case here and all that. It's, they could be pretty cumbersome. Okay. Yeah. And so you would listen to that and then go to school and talk about that. So that's the way you – that's the entertainment you bonded with your friends around yeah. when it comes to comedy? Yeah, I would say so. That was – and then, of course, stand-up. We would mm-hmm. talk about stand-up. I remember um, Kevin James, Sweat the Small Stuff, his Comedy Central special he had. This was in seventh grade. That was when I probably first really started to talk about stand-up with my friends. I remember Lee, uh, Lee Van Wilder, not Lee Van Wilder, Lee Van Gilder mm. actually won Wittiest in seventh grade. I was, uh, yeah. Curse you, Lee. Yeah, it was, uh, it was rigged. It was a rigged election. <laughs> but we would talk about like stand-up specials we would watch on the weekends and things like that. I remember the first stand-up special I saw was Sinbad, who Sinbad afros and bell bottoms. He would wear like jumpsuits and he was very animated and he was the comedian, I was like, oh wow, he's making comedy look fun and just natural and how he would do his storytelling and everything. And Kevin James the same way. It's just I've always just gravitated towards like with late night, just um a unique performance that really resonates with me. Did you ever try to replicate the comedy that you saw? Early on, Mitch Hedberg would probably be the comedian I would replicate and everybody and you know I'll teach um, a comedy class, and when you, you can tell st- who students' influences are coming into the class because they'll sound like them. Everybody sounds like whoever they listen to a lot. And even still, if I listen to a comedian enough, I will start to absorb their voice. So I don't really I – like, I watch it, but incrementally because if I start listening to somebody too much, their voice starts to get in my head. It's a weird – I don't know how that translates, but it, it's, it's – I've seen that to be a common thread just in comedians in general. So Mitch Hedberg, he's more of a one-liner, just kind of spaced out dude. Mm-hmm. He just more talks like this. So I started out sounding like him on stage, and you could tell that he was a big influence. But as you get on stage, you start to find your voice and how you can be funny on your own without subconsciously just kind of linking with these people in your head. Mm-hmm. When did you first start writing stand-up? It would be when I started. Yeah, when I made the decision to start, it was second semester of senior year of, of college. Co- of college. Of college, okay. yeah. Which if, if it was like even – if it was like junior year, I probably would have dropped out. Like if, <laughs> if I wasn't so close to the end, mm-hmm. I would have dropped out. As soon as I made the decision 
to pursue stand up. Mm-hmm. That was it from then on. So once I, I was second semester and I was like, well, what else do I have? What do I have to lose besides 80 grand in loans? Let's see, you know, <laughs> might as well try comedy. So I, I looked it up. I went to school up by Knoxville. So I looked up where the comedy show was there. And it was like a Sunday at Side Splitters Comedy Club. So that week, I just, I had a book, a stand up comedy book about joke writing. I read through it and just wrote what I thought would be funny. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't really written, nothing really comes to mind that I'd written anything funny besides, you know, check yes or no love letters to <laughs> Tina Dolworth in seventh grade, but a lot of seventh grade references today. <laughs> do you, <laughs> You're bringing me back. Have, do you want to <laughs> talk about seventh grade? Like, are you okay? <laughs> You're a good interviewer. You really listen. That's good. Um, no, no, nothing comes to mind, really. It's just funny. I've referenced that a couple times. Um, when you went into college, what did you mm-hmm. go for? What was your major? Uh, organizational management. What is what is that? <laughs> what it's that just mean? a business major for like okay. li- it was a liberal arts school. Okay, because you say a- that, and the first thing that came to my mind was the Container Store. <laughs> 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 so, uh, okay, so you went into college and you were not thinking about comedy at all. Like it had always been in the back of my head. Even okay. like I was wittiest in high school. I'd always been funny throughout my life, mm-hmm. and it was something in the back of my head. I was like, that would be cool to do. But thinking about it and actually doing it are two completely di- – people go their whole lives thinking about wanting to do something. But to mm-hmm. actually take the action to do it, whole other ballgame. So, so what, what pushed you? What pushed you over the edge to, okay, I'm doing this? I think it really was just the, the saying pressure makes diamonds. It's second semester senior year and you're like, okay, do I want to pursue this business career or do I want to follow this voice that's in the back of my head to do comedy, do comedy, do comedy, do comedy. Mm-hmm. And you're just always like, you just kind of suppress it and just, okay, yeah, you just, but practically I should do this. And it's second semester and you're kind of like, well, what are you going to do here? And you just might as well try it. You have nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment as soon as I did it. As soon as I got on that stage and just had the microphone and said, like, my first line, they didn't get a laugh, but it was a smile. Mm-hmm. I knew I was just, I was, I was high for, st- I'm still high from that. Mm-hmm. You know, high on life, kids. High on drugs. life. Yeah. No, yeah. You, you kids and your Adderalls and all that now. Mm-hmm. The, the marriage of Vana. <laughs> yeah. What they say. <laughs> uh, what did your parents say when you told them? I'm, I'm going to be a stand-up. I'm doing comedy. Were they supportive? Super supportive. I feel very fortunate in my whole career is that I haven't really had anybody who's been like, really? Are you sure? But keep in mind, everybody's always been super supportive. Mm-hmm. I think because I was always naturally funny and that was always a personality quirk that, especially my mom, she was just like, oh, well, finally. You know, it's almost like something she knew all along. It's like you were coming out of the closet. Like, dude, we, you are, we all dude, knew. When I, um, <laughs> when I, uh, when I made the decision to pursue it, it was literally, that was the joke I made with my mom when I, when I did it is because I, I was like, it was such an emotional moment. <laughs> we were at Chick-fil-A, which is funny coming out of the closet moment. We were at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> And I was like, I think I'm going to pursue this comedy thing. And I like started crying for some reason. It was like very emotional. And then my mom has a great sense of humor too. And after like having that moment, she, she said something like, it is almost like a coming out of the closet moment. She made that joke you just made. And then we started laughing that it was, it was like this emotional transition because I think it, it had been built up 
over pretty much my entire life. Mm -hmm. So then that's why I'm saying it's one thing to think about it, but then to actually make the decision to pursue it. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a night and day. I now look at the world through a completely different lens. My priorities are completely different than what they were. Mm-hmm. I oh man, that is so funny. You were at Chick Fil A just eating Chick- your nuggets, yeah. dipping them in the sauce. Just, <laughs> just I think crying. it was a number one. I think I was having a number one back then. It was a it was a number one moment in life, though. Definitely one of those transformational <laughs> moments. I'm sure. Yeah, and that's awesome that your parents, both of them, supported you. And, yeah, and everybody going for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but to talk a little bit about your first set ever. Yeah, you know, second semester of college, you get up there. You said you just got <laughs> smiles. Do you remember what your first joke was? Uh, I remember. Like in that book, saying it was talking about misdirects a lot mm-hmm. and like one liners and setting them up in the punchline is the the switch and i had just gone to a wwe event with my friends not even really i hadn't watched i grew up like watching wrestling but i had never i hadn't watched it in years but my friends were going and i was like mm, that could be a cool experience you know so the joke i wrote from that was um it was something about you know i just had my I went to my first uh, went to my first disco or oh, I don't even remember what the wording was, but it was something like I went to my first disco recently. There was a bunch of flashing lights and there were dudes in speedos, and then I like woke up and it was a WWE event or something <laughs> like some misdirect where I'm at the disco. No, I'm really at wrestling, mm-hmm. but that was and rightfully so to not get a laugh uh but <laughs> i just remember people politely smiling and just oh look at them up there trying you know all seven of them in the mm-hmm. audience mm-hmm. but from then on dude it's yeah it's that's it so you graduate college you said mm-hmm. you were up in tennessee yeah did you come are you from atlanta yeah mm-hmm. so did you come back to atlanta after college yeah, I moved back in. I moved in with mom, mm-hmm. as college grads do, mm-hmm. you know. So I moved back in with my mother and was pursuing, I guess, professional work or whatever. The job I got was Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Okay. Which was ugh, the worst. <laughs> it's funny, and you'll you'll find this. You never know how you survive something looking back on it, but at the time you just have to. But it, it was just terrible. It would be like have to be at work at like 6.15 work until like five and then do shows that night then be back up for work at Ugh. 6 15 and just do that cycle just over because stand-up is everything mm-hmm. that was everything to me mm-hmm. now of course along the way before i got enterprise i was um a driver helper for ups like a seasonal job you know i've been a dishwasher i've waited tables i've been pizza delivery like i've done all the jobs that, you know, along the way. But Enterprise was a good one that helped me to build up kind of a runway. So then I could save up while living at home to then move out. And then I took on, actually when I moved out, and like another big transitional step was just quitting Enterprise in pursuit to have more time for comedy, taking a way less paying job, Mm -hmm. just for the fact of I can then incrementally start becoming full-time in comedy. Mm -hmm. So when did that shift come, when you were able to come full-time in comedy? It became, what was that moment? When did I become full-time? I was was a hotel mini-bar attendant, which is a real job. Hmm. I just went around (laughs) refilling the mini-bars at Lowe's Hotel in Midtown. Which was dope, a lot of naps and free food, Mm -hmm. you know? And I actually went on a little bit of a tour, just a little side note. I went on a little bit of a tour with a couple Atlanta comedians, 
and I took just all the expired Cliff Bars. That's what I ate for like a week. Oh, my God. It was just Cliff Bars the entire week. They were free. <laughs> right. And that's how – that's – you know, when you, when you have a long-term goal, you'll make the short-term sacrifices mm-hmm. it, with that in mind. So I was willing to eat this for a week just because it was free – Instead of like traveling around, you know, making 20 bucks for a show that's 12 hours away or whatever, you know. So mm-hmm. I don't – I'm trying to – I mean I guess I was full-time when I quit that job. But I don't know how I calculated actually quitting. I think I just had enough – I had just saved up enough money to where I was like, okay, I'm doing this now. It was definitely baby steps. It wasn't just like I wake up one day and I'm going to just quit. It was very it – was, it was strategic and definitely intentional because you can – there's something to be said about just timing and letting things kind of ferment before you just jump into it. Mm-hmm. So I, wi- I honestly wish I could remember. I'm glad you asked that. I cannot remember the actual – moment i was like this is it i'm doing comedy full-time but sat your mom down at a chick-fil-a yeah right yeah i'm full-time now mom and she cried i probably quit and then like a month later i'm like oh by the way mom i'm just doing comedy now don't worry about me though but things it's it's cool along the way you know when you learn by necessity you learn i was getting booked more on shows i think it's when i started to see comedy becoming full-time and i quit enterprise because it was starting to interfere with my comedy work so i quit that the mini bar job when it started to interfere with my comedy work as well so i think it just became as comedy took over each of those i just let it gradually just overtake all my other professions like that did you ever do so obviously you're stand-up but did you ever Uh get into like sketch writing or improv totally yeah that's how the stand-up class started was um, Ian Covell, who runs Highwire, mm-hmm. he was teaching improv. This was this was way back in the day. <laughs> but we were, like, doing it at, like, yoga studios and, like, in a loft or whatever. But I knew he was starting improv classes, so I actually started doing improv with him. And I did all the classes through – I've done all the improv classes through Highwire and also all the sketch classes through Highwire as well. So I've always been – you you can learn from everything you do, especially creatively. They all interact with each other. So that's – people in my class will have sometimes a sketch background, an improv background, acting background. Sometimes it's a father of three who's just always wanted to try comedy as well. So you get a little bit of everybody. But I think it's important for anybody, if you are a comedian – you know, try some sketch writing. Try some improv. They all help each other. The thing I love about stand-up, though, is it's kind of like the Swiss Army knife – in the sense of you're the writer, you're the director, you're the actor, you're the editor. So it forces mm-hmm. you to draw on all of those skills. Mm-hmm. So that's why I encourage everybody to at least try stand-up because it really does help you to be more self-sufficient. But I know from just doing sketch and improv that it's only amplified my stand-up as well. So when it comes to stand-up, like I know there's different ways you can tell a joke. You can mm-hmm. tell it in like a story or you could mm-hmm. do a one-liner like we were talking about before. Um, what is your personal style and how did you discover that? I like my style to be more conversational. Okay. In the sense of you don't really know there's a punchline. I'm just talking. Mm-hmm. But I've been doing comedy. It'll be eight years on February 1st. So that's a style that, of course, I'm still honing and still learning. I'm, this is a lifelong pursuit. I am by no means like the omniscient comedian. <laughs> but where I started 
was learning the basics, learning how a joke works, learning how to write a joke. So I started out being a one-line comedian where I would just say one-liners. But that taught me kind of the mechanism of getting a laugh is that a joke has to have these elements in order to work. So now I'm able to apply it in a more broad sense, in a more conversational sense. But I started out being rigid and just one-liner to develop the style, to understand first how to be funny, how you're funny, before you can start making jokes about maybe more obscure things like politics and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And you also said you're you're a teacher for stand-up, right? Mm -hmm. How many years did it take before you felt comfortable in saying, okay, I feel like I've learned enough that I can translate this to, to others? I think I've been doing the class like two years now, but I would have never, I would have never thought to do a stand-up class ever. I know you had Travis Jones on here, mm-hmm. and he didn't have the best experience with his stand-up class because mm-hmm. there is a, there's kind of a stigma, especially with stand-up classes, of like, well, you can't really teach stand-up. It's kind of like a Ponzi scheme or whatever, whatever. And you know, I was in that camp of just like, I don't really, these stand-up classes. I don't really know, but. I had done all these classes at Highwire with like sketch and improv, and Ian was like, "Have you ever thought about a stand-up class?" And I was like, "Well, I've thought about what I think about stand-up classes, <laughs> but as I've, I so I kind of took it on just as a challenge to maybe do it the right way because there yeah. are some dudes who teach stand-up and they don't even really do stand-up, or they used to do stand-up and now they're just a full-time teacher. Mm-hmm. So I mean, to each his own, you know, and they'll just." charge like 500 bucks and just be like, come my children or whatever. But I, I realized that I had, I had been doing comedy like six years, but in that six years I am on stage like, and I'm not exaggerating legitimately like every night of the week, every night I was on stage. And if I wasn't on stage, I was at a club watching a headliner work. I was, and I still am completely submersed in the comedy world. I'm more strategic with my time and getting the return on your time and maybe not being out till one in the morning on a Saturday just watching a comedian. Maybe go to their 8 o'clock show or something. But I was just – I anytime I do something, I pursue it 100%. So I knew in that six years I was not an expert, but I had learned a lot from experts. And I had learned a lot of mistakes that I thought people would kind of – help people progress and learn comedy faster because it's a very slow process developing material. So I've learned through a lot of research and trial and error how you can develop jokes faster. So that was kind of my pursuit in that, you know, I'm not an expert, but I have learned kind of hacks into how you can develop material quicker and more personal material faster and just in a fun environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the number one excuse that you hear from people when they finally sign up for a class as the reason why they hadn't written anything ever before? Number one excuse. Um, some people are like, you know, I'm just not a writer. I just talk and it just comes to me. That's a big misconception in stand up is like, oh, they're just talking. Mm-hmm. Look, it's magic. I could do that. Mm-hmm. And then day one, they get up here and they realize, oh, I need to write jokes. Right. Because every week we perform in class. Because at, at the end of the day, that's why the stand-up class can get a bad stigma is because at the end of the day, you learn stand-up by doing. You learn it by standing in front of a room of people, mm-hmm. telling them your thoughts, and then taking note on how they reacted and then build on those reactions. Mm-hmm. So every week – we're in here performing in front of each other like it is an open mic. And 15 people, that's bigger than some open mics in Atlanta, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's really, that's a major part of stand-up is performing. So 
that's something a lot of people come in, especially they have an improv background. They're like, oh, I just make it up. I'm just a genius or whatever. And then I, they'll be like, I had this great story I'm going to tell that my friends loved. And they say it and none of it got a laugh. And then mm-hmm. that's kind of the the sedative where they're like, all right, this actually is work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have the students write new material every single week or they like start and then they just work on a set for the entire time. Well, the whole, the whole end goal of the, the class is that they have a f- tight five minute set filmed for mm-hmm. the, for the grad show. Okay. So we're all working towards a five minute set, but in eight weeks, you know, some students, everybody's different. That's I don't tell anybody this is the right way. There is really only your way and how I pursue it. I just give them a bunch of different writing exercises, a bunch of different editing techniques, a bunch of different insight from comedians and things I've done through my podcast as well. It's like from interviewing people, mm-hmm. give them a bunch of different information and then they pick it. I call it like finding your system. So it's, they just plug in what works for their system. Mm-hmm. So some people, They'll write jokes and then just work throughout that eight weeks on just incrementally adjusting those to get it fine-tuned for the grad show. Some people just try new stuff every week, and then they kind of organize it at the end of the eight weeks and put it into a set. Mm-hmm. But everybody's different. Have you ever had a student come in that just, like, blew you away? Like, this guy or this girl's fantastic? Yeah, I've had a lot of students. And the, the what's what's tough about comedy, you know, and me talking about how I would have my job at 6 a.m. and then I would be out late doing shows and then back at my job at 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. There is no way around the work. You cannot outsmart the work. And stand-up is a lot of work. It's you got to be out late doing shows. And I've had so many students in here with like a promising like talent where like they could they could really do something of this if they want. But they just they just can't make the time commitment and they they'll commit to it in that eight weeks. But once you get away from it, it's hard to get back in that that orbit, you know, just like Mm -hmm. just like going to the gym. It's it's hard to start, but it's so easy to like quit. Right. It's hard to start the habit, but it's easy to break it. And that's. I, at this point, I've just been kind of – I used to take it kind of personally. It's like, well, why don't they did – did what I teach them not stick with them? But, I mean, people have lives, you know. A lot mm-hmm. of people – most people aren't taking this class to become, you know, the next Netflix special or whatever. Some people are just curious about stand-up and want to learn more about it and have some fun. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of helped me in my teaching style as well is let's just – let's have fun while we learn. This isn't – it used to be like comedy CrossFit where like you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. But mm-hmm. now it's like here's a bunch of options. Apply them as you will and uh, we will reflect on it. Mm-hmm. So that's – yeah. So if somebody's listening to this um, – They are. They, this is a great podcast. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You're, you're filled with compliments, <laughs> aren't you? OK. So uh, if, if one of the six people who are listening right now if, – if, Hi, mom. If, if one of them – yeah, for hi, mom too. Uh, <laughs> if, if one of them is like, OK – I've always wanted to write, but I don't know how to start. I don't know how to start writing. What is your suggestion for how to write down something? I would – first, the most broad way to generate ideas is free writing. That's a very – are you familiar with free writing? Is, is this similar to like stream of consciousness where you totally. just write? Yeah, it's totally just stream of consciousness. It can be as simple as you start out with, oh – I heard Joel Byers on this podcast, and he said I should start free writing. So now I'm free writing. I hate writing. Maybe it's because I failed it in elementary school. Well, maybe it was because I was too busy flirting with Carrie Cannon. And like, so now you went from 
you're writing this morning because you heard this podcast to now you're talking about flirting with this girl in like fourth grade. So now you, in just a couple of lines, you made it all the way down to like an actual fertile topic you may be able to find humor in. Mm-hmm. So if free writing is always where I start in the class and it's just a great way to generate ideas. If you already have an idea, like let's say it is, I remember my first girlfriend being Carrie Cannon. So maybe free write just about that whole experience and just stay within that realm. So Free writing can be completely random, or it can also be like kind of premise or topic driven. Then, then you can start to dive into more details about it. But I would recommend anybody. Free writing is a great way to start, and I would say start personal. Start with things you have an emotional connection to. Things maybe the free writing starts with "I love this," "I hate this," "I'm confused by this." Really attach an emotion to what you're writing about, because that's where you're really gonna start to find the material and ideas that will resonate with other people. Mm-hmm. So I read um, Kevin Hart's autobiography. Mm. It was giant. It was very long. Yeah. I read the whole thing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the entire thing. I didn't know you guys read books, you mm. millennials. I wow. am a reader. Wow. One of the few. Yeah. We're a dying breed. <laughs> uh, but I, I read the whole thing. And in it, he has a very interesting story because he started and at the beginning of his stand-up, he went by Lil' Kev the Bastard. Yeah. That's uh-huh. what he went by. And his stories <laughs> were just like crazy. Like they were obviously made up, but they were just so wild that people thought it was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, he met this other stand-up whose name is I'm totally blanking on, but he was more of a well-known guy. And um, the guy said, you have to make fun of yourself. You have to show weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why if you watch or read, I like reading stand-up. It's very, it's strange. Interesting. I like, I like reading transcripts of stand-up. Will you type them out yourself? Um, either I type them or I'll find it online where someone else has typed it and I, I read it. It's very, it's... Interesting. It, yeah, it's I've never done that actually. It's interesting for me. So like I read... Um, Kevin Hart's specials, either like his, it's not, it wasn't his last one, his most recent, but it was like two specials uh-huh. ago. And it's just taking the words for themselves, and there's no performance. Like in the middle of the performance, he would shoot fire. And so visually, right. that's like hysterical. But in parentheses where it says shoots fire, <laughs> it's not as funny. So yeah. you just get a totally different perspective on it. So I read through it. And he's, he does that now, where it's a lot of self-deprecating, like, the joke's really on me, I'm the idiot. Um, he told this hilarious story. Um, he was he got in a fight with his girlfriend, and he's like, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm walking out, I'm leaving. And he gets in the car and starts driving, and he hears a thud from the trunk. And he's like, well, I'm a small person, and so I get concerned <laughs> that I hear a thud from the trunk. So he stopped the car, he got out, he opened the trunk, and his girlfriend was in the trunk. She jumped out of the trunk and just started running. And just ran away. So he was like, oh, my God, that was crazy. I need to get back in the car and beat her home (laughs) so I can, you know, call her on this. So he gets in the car. He speeds home, and she's in the kitchen cooking, right? And he's like, you just jumped out of my trunk. She's like, no, I did not. He's like, yes, you did. I saw you. And she goes, it must have been a different bitch. And so he's like, was there another woman? (laughs) Right, yeah, So he's questioning himself. But the whole story, you know, is making fun of him Mm -hmm. because he's a cheater. And so now he's questioning who's the woman that really jumped out of my car. Right. Do you like self-deprecating humor? That was a a lot of talking for that question. You're doing great, man. Don't worry about it. Do you like self-deprecating humor? Yeah, I I find that – and this is something I'm challenging myself with more very recently actually – is making the uh, the the shift more inward because I do comment on a lot of like political things happening or maybe cultural things happening. I comment, I'm pointing outward more, but I have found as I explore myself more 
that it provides context for my points of view on all of these things. So then people connect with it more and it makes the jokes already have funnier when they have the context of where I'm from, who I am, why I think the way I do and mm-hmm. really bringing yourself into it because the great part about stand up is it is just you and nobody can steal you as far as like material stealing material. Nobody can steal you. So the more personal you can be, it's also the more universal you will be on stage as well. So that is definitely a pursuit I've just embarked on literally probably like two months ago. I was like, I should really be more personal on stage. I'm just kind of pointing and commenting, but why? Who am I to be thinking this? So I'm just turning it more inward now. Okay. Mm-hmm. And now another quote that I want to tell you about is I watch uh, Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee with awesome. Jerry Seinfeld. Awesome show. And in one of the earlier episodes, he was saying how if you are funny, you do not need to take a class of any type. Mm-hmm. If you're funny – It was Steve no Harvey who was talking about that. Okay. okay yeah, yeah so, I've seen that. Yeah. Um, so he, he, said, he said that. Do you agree with that? I think taking a class will help you learn faster, help you develop faster. Mm-hmm. But you can, yeah, you can learn the hard way by going out and doing open mics like I did for six years and mm-hmm. just figure it out through a lot of failure. Or you can take a class. It's kind of like somebody, they want to do acting. Just, well, let me go figure out acting. Right. Okay, well, go ahead. Yeah. You know, there's something to be said, or I want to I want to do business. Maybe get a business degree as well is another thing that I'm clearly using. Well, I guess I am, actually. I am a business, aren't I? Interesting. I just thought about that. I need to start. I need to get my life together. No, I'm thinking about that. <laughs> I'm just the show. It is a show and a business. It's like two jobs stand-up is. Mm-hmm. But I was saying all that to say I think a class is very beneficial just in learning from somebody who is actually a professional in that field, mm-hmm. it kind of gives you a direction. Because me going into stand-up, it's pretty much me blindfolded, just reaching around, just trying to figure out ways and figuring out hows. So now that's what my class is, is pretty much almost eight years of comedy synthesized into eight weeks. Mm-hmm. But for sure, you can certainly learn stand-up by going out at a bar on a Tuesday at 11 and talking to three drunk people in the bartender and just figuring out how you can be funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Okay, okay. And, oh, you have... You... No, I mean, some. there's been, like, famous comedians who have also taken comedy classes. It is a nice... I'm not for or against. It took me six years to even think, comedy classes are dumb. Why would you do it? But now, as I've had so many people come through my class... And seeing some not pursue it after, some excel and even like move on to like an L.A. or New York and really be pursuing it, I can see the benefit in it, especially from just a time standpoint and a community standpoint of your learning in a more comfortable environment. So you're still trying new material, but you're getting constructive feedback on it as opposed to getting booed, mm-hmm. which happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of getting booed, this is my favorite thing to ask stand-ups and i asked uh, mm. travis this i had Haley mm. elman on last week yeah i talked to her about this do you have a heckling moment that stands out in your mind i there's so many and <laughs> I, I actually i ask all my guests on my podcast that too a boo story okay um or like a, just an epic failure if they're not a comedian just one of their low points mm-hmm. i literally had a heckling experience like two weeks ago no, like a week ago. Mm. It was at an open mic. And I used to be very temperamental on stage, and I would yell a lot. And especially if somebody got up 
and just walked out in the middle of my set, even if, if, even if I'm in a coffee shop and somebody's just going to the bathroom, I'd be like, okay, we got something better to do. Do you even know who I am? I would like go in and be like, you're not getting tickets to Phillips arena when I'm there. <laughs> I'm just yelling though. It's, but I've, I've since moved on. I've got more professionalism, but I was actually talking to my class about it. And then that week I had another blow up moment. I hadn't had in years, but it was at urban grind Tuesday night open mic, great open mic for comedians to go to and work out stuff. It's just show up, go up. It's been around forever. And it's primarily comedians in there, a couple audience members, but it's always usually comedians. But the good part about that show is the comedians listen and you get feedback on your jokes. But for some reason, there was a comedian there, in quotes, who who was talking and then I just kind of, you know, a good way to deal with hecklers is literally just to shush them. You can just shh. And they'll usually, they'll usually just kind of be like, what? And they, they'll just kind of blend back into the audience. And they, it's not even a distraction to the show. So I did that. And the one guy, one guy stopped talking. But then the other one directed his attention to me, the, the, the comedian. This is a comedian at an open mic heckling another comedian. It didn't make any sense. And I've dealt with enough hecklers to know you don't want to fight fire with fire and like come over the top with them. If anything, let them, let them, you kind of olay them like bullfighting. Really, you, they say something and then you react to it. You're not really the instigator. Mm-hmm. Because if there's a heckler, the audience is on your side. They're ruining the show for everyone, so they want you to win. They're on your side. So just let the heckler almost kind of just punch himself out. So I was being very nice. And really, I was, I just broke it down as part of like, I was like, could you please stop talking just act as if I'm not even on stage? Hey, man, could you please stop talking while I do this? And he kept talking. And I was like, dude, look at where we are, man. We're at an open mic at a coffee shop. Nobody here made it. And then he got even louder. So he kept getting louder with every response. So then eventually kind of what broke the, the comics back, if you will, <laughs> was a good way, of course, to keep the audience on your side is uh, to weave in material as you're interacting with a heckler. So you're still getting those laughs along the way if it's mm. not necessarily funny. So I weaved in a joke that he had heard before. So then he made fun of me for telling a joke that he's heard before, and he was, like, yelling it at this point. This is, this is like Twilight Zone stuff. Like, this is an open – this never happens, dude. So then he yelled at me, oh, still doing the same old joke. You heard that one before. And I was like, yeah, that's why we're here. We're – we're doing jokes, and we work them out and get better. Completely calm. I posted on my social media. I'm still completely calm at this point. And then he yells even louder. He's like, oh, yeah, you teach a class. And I just go, shut up. Shut up. I just – I lost it, dude. Like I really just saw red, and I was – I really – I was like, if I'm going to fight fire with fire, I am just going to go straight flamethrower. Mm-hmm. And I just yelled at him. And then I said, this is why you're not going anywhere because you don't care about anybody but yourself. But I was screaming this at an open mic. Literally, the room is probably the size of this room we're in right now. So it was loud. And then as soon as that happened, I just put the mic down and like left. I just walked out. So that was my most recent heckler story <laughs> and um, probably one of my most memorable. This is, it's, it's, I mean, for anybody that does comedy, that, that does not happen. It was mm. almost like... It's weird. I was like talking about how I used to blow up on stage in class Sunday, and then that Tuesday it happened in this moment. It's just, it's weird how those will creep up on you. But mm. that's one I'll never forget, dude. Wow. Yeah. 
That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. Especially where it's like, you're right. We're, we're there just to get better, to work together. Yeah. Why are you here if you're trying to ruin it for everybody else? And then he like cha- – and I just left. And he like chased me down outside and was like, oh, man, I'm sorry. You know, I thought we were having fun. I, I didn't even – I didn't even listen. I just kept walking. And I'll just – he's just – that's just one less person to worry about, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it's – it was it was a comedian I hadn't even seen in a long time. Didn't even know, know he was still doing comedy. Almost as if he was there that night to take Joel Byers to the limit. <laughs> and he got me there. Wow. It was fun, though. It was cathartic to yell. I mean, I used to yell a lot on stage, just experimenting with different energies on stage. But mm-hmm. um, that was one where I just I – just, I had enough. And I wanted yeah. to set the tone because – like you're talking about comedy is hard. It's a huge time commitment. You're driving to this show. You're waiting for your spot. You may spend three hours to do five minutes. Mm-hmm. That five minutes is yours. It's sacred time. It is your five minutes out of 24 hours. So anytime somebody tries to impede on that, you, you take it personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, and now to talk a little bit about you know your time mm-hmm. and maybe your like – hour um let's talk about your podcast a little bit a happy Um, note uh, right on a more positive (laughs) a happier note tell me about the podcast how it got started and most importantly how the name came about well we'll start with the name it actually i was a big fan of fresh air npr's fresh air Mm. and i just liked how snappy the name was how quick it was you know fresh air so i just kind of brainstormed different names and hot breath just kind of it just kind of stuck mm-hmm. and it's been that ever since you know no no fancy origin story there just something i kind of thought of and it stuck mm-hmm. uh the podcast itself started because you know from interviewing so many of them but atlanta's comedy scene right now it's one of the best if not the best in the country as far as people who started here and have now moved on to different cities or people still here who are becoming major players in comedy so i was i noticed that there were 10 comics on Last Comic Standing one summer from Atlanta. And that the year before, an Atlanta comic had won it. So I was like, if I can interview these 11 comedians and just document this moment in Atlanta comedy, mm-hmm. it was more of just that sense of like just highlighting Atlanta comedy and just documenting this moment of us all, of all these people being from Atlanta and on this TV show. So I got that through just. Some came easier than others. It was all, you'll learn from doing a podcast. Yeah, there's all sorts of factors and barriers that are going to pop up to do an interview. But so once I captured those, which we ended up that year, Clayton English ended up winning as well. But I interviewed him before he could say anything about winning or not. So that was funny. Yeah, I got to interview him after as well. But that was a fun kind of time capsule. And then that was like season one. And I was like, what am I going to do for season two? And I was like trying to overthink. You you just create a problem that's not there. And I was like, well, maybe I'll interview Instagram comedians now or whatever, something. And I was talking to David Perdue, an awesome Atlanta comic. Who actually, not to interrupt your story, is actually going to be on the show in, I think, next week. On your Uh, show? mm -hmm. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, he's been on mine too. He's amazing. And he was like, dude, just, just do it. He's like, just do the podcast. Just interview people. He's like, you're, right. you're making it too complicated. Just like, go Just for do it. it. Yeah. yeah. So then since then, I've just been releasing one every Monday at 8, and I've interviewed comedians, photographers, entrepreneurs, um, musicians. So it's not, it's not just comedy. You're branching out to I've all totally branched out. Social media experts as well. Yeah. Just It's now evolved from just 
comedy centric to just learning. Mm-hmm. And I uh, think educated entertainment is a buzzword people will say, but it really is like trying to educate people through entertainment. Mm-hmm. And I have found in branching out that like you can learn from everyone. Mm-hmm. Like I may be interviewing a CEO, but tips he has can apply and help comedians. Cause I know that's a big base still that I've started with and still continues to grow are comedians. So anybody I'm interviewing, whether it even be like a branding expert or a graphic designer, it's all with them in the back of my mind is like, okay, I want to make sure that these can apply to the comedy world as a whole, mm-hmm. but also to just anyone who's interested in learning about their expertise. Who is somebody that you had on the show? Thinking back, I know you've done over 100 episodes. Yeah. You, you mm-hmm. have a lot of guests. Mm-hmm. Who's someone that you had on the show who like today you're like, I still can't believe I got this person? Um... Aries Spears was a good one because I did not expect him to want to take the time to do it at all. You'll find people are a lot nicer than you think they are. <laughs> or they're, they're more willing to, especially like, like you have. You have a mobile setup. You make it convenient for people. Mm-hmm. You'll even do a phone interview with people. Like mm-hmm. I did a couple phone interviews early on, but then I just the, – the intimate interaction, you know. And mm-hmm. like I could have interviewed Mark Norman over the phone while he was in town at Phillips Arena with Amy Schumer. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to wait. There's going to be a time our paths cross where I'll be up in New York or he'll be back down here. A couple months mm-hmm. later, he was at Laughing Skull. Boom. Got to meet him. Then we did the interview in person. Mm-hmm. Um, Aries Spears was a good one. I worked with him at Uptown. And then after doing a couple shows together, I was like, hey, man, I have this podcast. If you want to do it? So mm-hmm. do, do you know who Aries Spears is? Mm-mm. Okay, cool. I was just nodding because I tried totally. to be friendly. Totally. No, I feel you. But then <laughs> I, I did realize, I was like, oh, he's 20. He probably doesn't know. Aries Spears, do you know Mad TV? Mm-hmm. Yep. So he was like a major cast member on there. Okay. And he's one of the most well-known impressionists. Like he can impersonate anybody. So it was cool to sit down with him. And just uh, see him be like, so how do you do this impersonation? And him like talk about the music of impersonating people and him actually go through his impersonations. That's very cool. And I'm just sitting here. Because, you know, I watched, I would watch some Mad TV. That's another late night shows, I guess. Mad TV mm-hmm. and Saturday Night Live. But I remember watching him on TV and now I'm sitting here like interviewing him. Right. And he's like doing face these characters face. like face to face. I'm like, this is bizarre. <laughs> um I think the first one that gave me confidence, that's just so funny. You just agreed. Yeah. Oh, Aerie Spears. Yeah, yeah totally. Of course. you don't want to like what negate a guy. the guest. <laughs> it's like improv, like you said right. in the beginning. But uh, I do the same thing. <laughs> I'm trying to get better about just being more in the moment about it. But um, I think Rodman, he won – he won um he's another comedian who if you've he's been doing it over twenty years, mm-hmm. but he's from Atlanta, won last comic standing the year before. But he was someone who I reached out to him about doing an interview. This was when I first started the podcast. Mm-hmm. Reached out to him about doing an interview, never heard back, reached out to his management, and they were like, Eh, no, no thanks, but no thanks. And then gave it a couple weeks, really kind of got my image back, kinda of got a little more organized, a little more professional, created a press kit kind of create a context for what I'm doing with the podcast, all that. Mm-hmm. And then followed up with his management about, okay, here's what I'm doing. Would he be interested in this? And then they actually came back and we're like, oh, yeah, he'll do it. So that was early on my first experience in turning a no into a yes. Mm. So I'm glad I did that in my first you know, couple interviews because that kind of gave me the confidence – to reach out to people and to pursue them beyond just the initial no. Mm-hmm. So 
I would say that with you as well. If it's initial, if it's at first not a no, give it a little time, regroup your pitch, and then try again. Because mm-hmm. I, I will say I, I like sending out just like blind emails, just like shot in the dark, like, hey, here's my podcast. Here's what I do. Here's what we talk about. Here's the link. Mm-hmm. Some people I've had on. Let me know. Exactly. Um, and I'll tell you because I, I have heard back from a couple comedians, and I'll tell you their names after we finish recording. <laughs> um, but but I definitely I feel I feel I like that how you know you reach back out maybe a month or two months and mm-hmm. say hey here's where I was but here's where I am now totally here's how it's grown I've gotten new people everything's like growing so yeah I for sure I like that a lot to hear and think about what's in it for them you know they're taking the time to do it you can almost time it around if they're if they're getting ready to promote something mm-hmm. you can right. add that into the pitch oh I know you have this book coming out you could come on here and talk, talk about, about your it. book yeah. Yeah, just right. what's in it for them right. that's that's to all make people, them look good yeah that's all people are going to care about is what's in it for me right. so really and when you're pitching people and social media dude social media is extremely powerful i've booked so many interviews just through tweeting someone mm-hmm. or sending them a dm on instagram not even going through management just going directly to them mm-hmm. and they've been very responsive mm-hmm. so give that a shot too don't don't sleep on that yeah for sure mm-hmm. for sure now i only have Two more questions for you. Oh, um, one is one that I just thought of. It's short, it's short and sweet. <laughs> okay. Um, and then the next one is the the big one. There's a big question at the end. Okay. Okay. Um, we're not getting married. Don't worry. It's, <laughs> it's not that. Um, so the the question <laughs> the question that I I want to ask you is who is your favorite comedian? Steve Martin. Why? He was another one like we talked about with late night and comedians I gravitated towards. He's another comedian who was groundbreaking. He broke down barriers. He was not only comedy-wise but also business-wise. He was the first comedian to really start selling out arenas. Mm-hmm. He's also a comedian who has gone beyond stand-up into, you know, he's a banjo virtuoso. He's written movies, he's directed movies. In his stand-up alone, his whole pursuit, which if you haven't read his book, uh, Born Standing Up, mm-hmm. have you read it? Mm-hmm. Amazing. And his whole pursuit was almost like the anti-punchline. Instead of kind of like s- setting up the audience for like, okay, I'm saying this, and now here's your turn to laugh with this punchline. He would almost create a void where the punchline should be and then let the audience decide where to laugh. And through you know years of honing that skill – he then discovered how he could almost do anti-comedy and just doing like comedy through tension as opposed to just this laugh here, laugh here, laugh here. Like as it almost – he really just kind of broke down how people look at comedy and in me included, just beyond even just stand up and just showing you what's possible. He's amazing. Steve dude. Martin has my favorite joke that I've ever heard. Okay. Um, and I read it actually. Read it online. Wow. I laughed so hard I cried Whoa. When, I, when I read this. Uh-huh. Um, and I tell people it because people always I, I tell them I do the podcast, I do improv too. So all my friends are always like, What's your favorite joke? What's your favorite joke? And I tell them, No one's ever thought it's funny. Except okay. for me. So I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully you think it's funny. I I bet you will though. I just have <laughs> it's that a lot feeling. of pressure now. Jeez, um, Max. So huh? so here's the joke. Here's the joke, ready? Okay. But first the doctor told me the good news. I was going to have a disease named after me. <laughs> See, it's funny. It's a funny joke. <laughs> and I tried really hard not to laugh. I was going to be like, hold back on you. It's funny. It is funny. I yeah. read it. And it was just, uh, it's just so, it's so clever. It's so, yep. you know, on so many different levels. Yeah. So I tell people and people are like, so he's sick. 
like well I don't yeah like it just doesn't make sense because it's not about the joke it's about what's happening beyond the joke exactly and I just think that's so genius that mm-hmm. little that one liner boom there's so much in that it's so clever so creative it's mm-hmm. my favorite joke that's what I tell people that's a winner dude it I, is I really wanted to hold back and it leave is. you hanging there on not <laughs> laughing but that's just that's that's brilliant it's okay I just would have edited in laughter earlier and Perfect. put it yeah, in, right, put yeah. it in we would have been good either way <laughs> Yeah, that's he's yeah he's one of the best, man. My favorite for sure. So now the final question I have for you is a question I ask every guest. All right, so every single guest has been asked this, and you said you've listened to an episode, so you may know what's coming. Okay. Um, but the question I have for you, oh, it's not. Oh, it is a question. I was playing it out in my head. It is. It is. It's not a statement. It's a question. If you were to give one piece of advice to somebody who eventually wants to be in your shoes, what piece of advice would you give them? Work. That's really it. It it takes work regardless of what you're going to do and pursue. It takes work, commitment, dedication, perseverance, all those buzzwords you see on banners and with cats hanging in there or whatever. (laughs) Do the work. That is something that talent – you know, there's one thing to be said about talent, but work can really – compensate for your lack of talent through just development and skill development so i'm huge on work ethic and just if you're going to do something do it the right way really commit to it and understand why you're doing it as well there's so many people who are pursuing certain aspirations and not even knowing why but if you understand your why then that'll help you through the hard times of you know the highs and the lows everything there's going to be a crest and trough so really think about why you're doing what you're doing, what you want to get out of it, have goals that you can start to kind of work towards, you know, so it gives you kind of a purpose and a reason why you are up at 2 a.m. editing this podcast before you have to be up for work. It's that gives you all the motivation you need. But at the end of the day, work. That's it, man. My students will come in here week one and be like, is this even going to be fun? Because they think stand-up is just, hey, and I was like, well, you got to work at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be fun when you get laughs, but it takes work. If you right. see a comedian and their Netflix special is an hour, there's probably 20 minutes, not 20 minutes, like 20 hours of work that go in, mm-hmm. that goes into that one hour. Work. Whatever you're going to do, work. For sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if people want to see you perform around Atlanta or take your class or listen to your podcast, what are some ways they can find you? JoelBuyersComedy.com is my website. On there, there'll be a link to my podcast. It's called Hot Breath. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. Pretty much, if you just Google Hot Breath or Google Joel Byers, Hot Breath Podcast will pop up. It's a new one every Monday at 8 a.m. I host a show every Wednesday at Java Monkey in Decatur, Georgia. Been doing that about six and a half years now. Super fun show. Atlanta has one of the best scenes in the country. Just come out and see why for free. Uh, it's one of my favorite nights of the week. Um, my comedy class, It's uh, the next one will come up in February. The next round will start in February. But that's highwirecomedy.com, or it's also linked to my, um, my website as well. If you go on my website, you'll see links to also my schedule is on there. But I guess the only other primary pursuit i um i did write a book with one of my former students who was um an uh mit alum who's just like a super brainiac so he added kind of the 
And he's also been a t- like a professor and all that, so he kind of helped synthesize more abstract ideas into kind of like chart form for people to actually be digestible. But it's called the Comics Playbook, and it's it's a workbook with a bunch of writing exercises. So maybe if you can't make the eight-week commitment to the class, this can be a nice jump start into your comedy writing. And that's linked on my website, and it's also um, comicsplaybook.com. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Super awesome. Well, Joel, thank you again for being on the show. Um, I appreciated you, you know, talking to me about comedy, talking about stand up, telling me your emotional trauma from seventh grade. You, we went to places, man. I got to say, you, um, <sighs> I've done a lot of interviews. I've conducted a lot. You really um, you got a knack for it. You're a great listener. You really kind of dove like we would have never have gotten to that Chick-fil-A moment if you didn't make the observation about that's like coming out of the closet. And then, boom, now all of a sudden you found this completely story that somebody's never told before those are the moments i look for when interviewing people is how can i get them to say something they never said before because i'll research them for a long time just to know everything and then try to find new within that context so nice job man hats off to you you shouldn't have quit the podcast so early when you were in (laughs) sixth grade you would have been famous by now thank you and i have to say uh to lee in seventh grade, you are the wittiest. <laughs> I'll let you know. I declare it. I declare you the wittiest. That was perfect. And for anybody listening, <laughs> remember you can find us on Facebook at Talking Late Night. You can visit our website at www.talkinglatenight.com. And you can also find us on iTunes as well. So thanks again for listening. Thanks, Joel, for being on the show. And we will see you next time. <laughs>